Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring, fascinating women who are navigating aging with class and sass. I'm your host, Nicole Christina. Hey everyone, I am so grateful for all of the downloads, and I'd love a rating on iTunes and a comment. And please subscribe. It helps the show's rating so other people can find it and learn how to age well. And if you are loving the podcast, why not check out the companion online course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. You can access it through my website, NicoleChristina.com forward slash Zestful Aging. It's based on the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and I'm really proud of how it's turned out. Well, I've got my coffee in my hand and my trusty dog Sparky beside me, so let's begin. Today we're with Heidi Holtz of Stillwork Consulting. Life for Heidi has always been about learning and change, and over the years, she felt she had at least one more reinvention left in her. She has a background in theater, worked at the Gifford Foundation, which is a private grant-giving foundation in Syracuse, and she's taught at Syracuse University. In 1996, she became a single mom, and in 2005, she left her long-time field in the arts to go a different direction. After her mother passed away a year ago and a first grandbaby was on the way, she is at it again. Another career pivot, this time at almost age 60. She said to me on March 5th, I woke up not having to answer to anyone but the dogs. For the first time in my life, I realized I didn't have to think about a husband, kids, an ailing mother, boss, or colleagues. Just me, and that's scary and exciting as hell. Hi, Heidi, welcome to the show. <laughs> Hi, Nicole, how are you? <laughs> good, good. How does it, is it funny to hear that introduction? I heard you chuckling. Yeah, I, <laughs> it is funny to hear. I mean, it's something that I had said, but then when I wrote it to you, I had, you know, kind of tried to think it through a little bit more, but anyone, any of my friends hearing that will go, yeah, yeah, we've heard that. That's her, that's, <laughs> that's her. her. Yeah. You know, in this show, we've been talking lately about change, obviously. There's a lot of transition, as we all know, in middle age. But I'm really curious about the question of when you know you almost have no choice but to pivot, when you get to the point where you may say to yourself, scared as hell, gonna do it anyway. Can you speak to that? Yeah, because um, it did happen twice, you know, with the, um, in, in 2005 when and I was uh, uh, invited to co-work for the Gifford Foundation after having spent 25 years in arts administration. Um, and then again, this past uh, year, and the, 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 uh, the thing that they both have in common is I remember you get to the point where you, literally you wake up in the morning, you don't necessarily wanna go to work. Um, it's not that you're not proud of your work. It's not that you don't like your colleagues and who you work with. There just seems to be this edge is missing. Um, 
the only way I can absolutely say I knew that they were right was after I'd done it. And the feeling of rightness mm. was so amazing. So, you know, uh, after I had, when I made the leap in, 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 in all, of course, all the other leaps in my life, but the real leap between leaving my careers that I'd known to go to the foundation, and I followed a mentor, so that helped. But um, that, at least I had a job. I was going to, a, in fact, a better paying job, right? It was like this. This is even more scary because I don't have, I'm having to reach out to clients. I need to get, you know, uh, work coming in. But I, I felt the same way. The morning after I had made the decision, it, that same sense of rightness had settled into me. It was the exact same feeling as I'd had in 2005. Can you describe that feeling? Uh, it's a feeling, I can't, I, I don't know how to describe it ever, other than everything. It's, it's sort of like whenever you've done something, if you've ever worked on a, a, a creative project or written a paper or presented, and uh, there's something seems to groove, something seems to go, yep, you know what? This is clicking along, and that's kind of how it felt. It felt like, okay, this, I'm in the right place at the right time, and I and I and I kept even doing check-ins to myself because I'm crazy that way. Is this too? Is this a bad idea? Am I, you know, what what am I missing? Am I fooling myself? And I, I kept feeling no. The check-ins were just constantly. This feels right. This feels right. This feels right. Some people, uh, there's a, a, you may know her, uh, her name is Martha Beck, and she, she's one of Oprah's gals, mm -hmm. but she has a really lovely way to describe, I think, what you're talking about, and she uses this expression, shackles off or shackles on, hmm. and she talks about when you make a decision that you say is in the groove, all of a sudden, there's an ease, and it feels like the shackles are off. I don't know. If yeah, that it does a little bit. It does a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't say what I had had before was shackles so much. I wasn't feeling that tight, but it just felt like oh, I'm. You know what I always said, whenever I thought about leaving um, any job, is I only believe in going towards, not running away. Mm -hmm. So that's what was my measure, mm -hmm. and that's what I think. It was like okay, good. Now I know I'm going towards. I have no idea what that is. I just left without a net. But I'm going towards I'm not running away. I loved the people I worked with. I did good work. I was happy, you know, uh, and I think it's important in organizations. So it's not like I'm fleeing something, but I'm really looking forward to seeing what else is out there in the world. And is part of the going towards something that's uniquely your own, is that a part that's attractive? I think now it is. Else? I don't think it was before. Um, the going towards in terms of leaving my arts career to go into philanthropy um, was the fact that I was going to a mentor, right? She had, she, I'd worked with her before, she's my longtime mentor, and Kathy Goldfarb Findling, she's an amazing woman, wasn't amazing when she's passed away, but she, bringing me there, I knew I was going towards something. I, I knew nothing of what I was going into. I mean, I had to keep asking her, what do these initials mean? What is, mm. what is WIC? You know, I didn't know any of that, because when you're kind of in the arts, you're kind of in a bubble. Anyone could have asked me anything about, you know, terminology in the arts administration, I would have been able to tell them in a second, but mm -hmm. in, the, in the sort of real world <laughs> of social services in particular, I didn't know anything. And I had to learn, and it's a really steep learn. This going towards is, um, it's a little bit more of a, uh, I'm, I know what I'm going towards is a big risk, and it's about... I realized as I've done it, opening myself up to possibilities to never, you know, so I, I've, I've been 
saying no to some things because I know they're not right for me. That's something that I would not have been able to do when I was younger. <laughs> I would have just probably said, yeah, yes, yes, I had mm. to take it. Um, mm -hmm. Saying, and then saying yes to things that, or at least, you know, I'll try it or maybe, um, that are areas I have not, I had not really thought about before. I've done a lot of listening to people and, and hearing a lot of very cool ideas. You know, you, it, it, you're kind of, I have so many questions <laughs> because there's so much good stuff here. But what that makes me think, and you mentioned that, you know, I would not have been able to do this as a younger woman. I would have not been as discerning. I would have just said, yes, 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 that sounds good. I'm, I'm going to take that. At some point, that makes me think you would have had to develop some trust in yourself. Oh, I'm still trying to do that. But yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um I remember when I was younger one time being at some, I was on, they asked to sit on a panel and in New Jersey and I remember giving my opinion and being hesitant to give my opinion because there were a lot of people around the table that I thought were much wiser than I was. And then giving my opinion and, and, and then looking around the table and everyone, yeah, you're right. And I, that feeling is the feeling I think I've tried to recapture in my life without overthinking it, right? I, I want to find that feeling that I know I'm right, I don't need other people's affirmation. I'm going to give this a shot, um, and I've made mistakes, right? And I, I, I believe very much in kind of assessing what I, I kind of assess every interaction and say, how could I have done that better? What did I do right? My biggest problems with everybody is when to shake off when you've screwed up, and say, you know, that was a dumb idea. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's sort of been, you know, my my biggest struggle has been knowing when things feel right and not second guessing and just saying, okay, you know what? If they're not right, it's not the end of the world. One of the biggest things that was very helpful to me when I left the theater and, and uh, went to work for the foundation is Kathy Goldfarb Finley said to me, you know, if, if we don't do our job, no one dies. And for her point of view was, if you have to go take care of a family member, if something has to change, we have to be flexible we have to be nimble or not doing our work. And that's a lesson mm -hmm. I've taken a lot into my life, that I have to be flexible, I have to be nimble, and I have to start trusting myself. I, I, I have said yes to things and regretted it, and in the past I would have just gone and done them and probably pissed at myself the entire time. Mm -hmm. But now I go and I do them. I, 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 go, I may not do them. I may call it and say, you know what, I've just changed my mind. I'm not mm -hmm. doing them anymore. And then I go, oh, my God, I can't believe I just said that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So there's risk. Yeah. How do you deal with that? And so tell me a little bit about still work consulting and what it is that you're you're creating. Hmm. Well, I mean, in simplest terms, it's a consultant group. Obviously, um, I have worked the big the big constant between the 25 years in arts management and the 13 years at the Gifford Foundation has been working with nonprofits. For the first 25 years, I was working for nonprofits seeking money in the traditional sense doing arts programming in the past 13 years working at Gifford it was giving money but um, one of the things I really learned a lot of in both those cases was the constant um, need on the part of nonprofits and the constant fear on the part of nonprofits about whether things were going to go right um, one of the things that I learned at, at, at Gifford was really about understanding that Nonprofits aren't going to be able to do their, their really good work unless they have the systems in place 
or the the beliefs in place to make it happen. Um, lots of times they can get in their own way eventually. Um, there's a weakness in an area um, that could be, you know, whether their, their board has begun to change or um, uh, during the downturn, we saw a lot of problems with nonprofits that you know had been having like 90% funding from the government. So there were changes like that. And so th that's, that's a constant need. Um, that's not just exclusive to Syracuse, of course. And that's what a lot of nonprofits do. They, I mean, a consultant, nonprofit consultants do. They go in and they say, can I help you with your fundraising campaign? Or can I advise you on succession planning or strategic planning? What I have had to try to do is find what is my niche um, in all of this. And I'm still don't quite know 100% what it is. Um, I know that I'm very good at, you know, uh, kind of looking at the big picture and all the various moving parts. Um, in particular, listening to things around Syracuse, I'm particularly interested in helping with board developments. I've become more and more convinced over the years that boards are the, the key to keeping a nonprofit uh, functioning and healthy board relations um, is really important. Um, uh, on a more regional and national basis, I've been doing uh, talking to people a little bit also about how to convene and facilitate people around difficult subject matters which is something I really enjoy doing. I've been a trained whoa, facilitator. Really? Ooh, yeah. You know, the therapist in me likes I know, I was like, whoa, you just really like... lean forward on that one. <laughs> it sounds like family therapy. It is not dissimilar. What? Tell yeah. me about that. Well, I, um, the, the, in, in, uh, whoosh, I think, I guess in the mid, very late 2000s, um, 10, mid 2008 or so, uh, our executive director, Kathy, said, you know, I, I think we don't, we need to find better, we need better facilitators in our town to help people have tricky conversations. It, Gifford is a, is a very foundation that's always been willing to have those difficult conversations. Um, worked a lot in neighborhoods on the south side where you had to be willing to listen to all sorts of different opinions and, and trust the voices of the people who are most affected. And so um, she said, I think I'd like to get you trained uh, as a facilitator, you know, formal training. So she, uh, she got, I went off and did a formal week-long training, uh, sort of a more of a basic different things. But at that one, the leader, the trainer taught me about another program in creative problem solving. So I went to a creative problem solving institute, which was incredibly cool. And there I learned about another thing. So I'm trained in about five different methods. Um, and all of them have, of course, obviously, they're all facilitating conversations. But um, for example, the creative problem solving looks at a problem. You know, how are we going to solve it, obviously, but how to use lots of different divergent ideas and come bring them together. I'm trained in appreciative inquiry, which is a lovely... Um, I love the name of yeah, it. Yeah, it's a lovely, lovely model um, that basically says, okay, well, tell me a story about when you were at your happiest. Tell me a story about when your organization was working at its best. Tell me a story when your board felt, you know, the, 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 the most important decision they made and it really worked well. Um, and what made those conditions possible? Why were they good? What, what made that? And do more of that. Don't just go right to the problem. Look at it from an asset-based. We call it strength-based in strength therapy based, of course. Strength-based. I've done all the strength-finding stuff too. <laughs> oh my gosh. But yeah, so that is, uh, that is something that, so for an example, in, in, in traditional facilitation, traditional nonprofit management there's uh and business too there's something called the SWOT test have you heard of that mm -mm. it's a it's a it's a exercise you go through I said nonprofit and businesses do it called strengths weaknesses opportunities and threats oh well I've always hated it because I thought that even the idea of having a conversation where words like threats were 
introduced felt really uncomfortable to me. And the kind of aha moment for me, um, which I found on my own and didn't realize it was a part of appreciative inquiry, is replacing SWAT with SOAR, which is strengths, opportunities, aspirations, and results. So it doesn't ignore the opportunities, but it puts them in a slightly different place and, and doesn't look upon them, doesn't look at everything as threats. It looks like, okay, what do we want to achieve? What, what's our goal? What's our, what's our dream? Um, so anyway, those kind of different facilitations, I did a lot of those. All the training happened because of the foundation wanting to invest in me personally, which was really a wonderful gift. And then the foundation would send me out sometimes as a facilitator. And I would work with boards and I would work in things. And I used a lot of the techniques when I taught as well. So um, it is not unlike therapy at all, wow. I have to tell you. So, you have to read a room. You have to figure out when someone's yeah, upset. Yes, so a lot of body language oh, yeah. and all that. Oh, yeah. So um, do you sometimes personally know some of the people on these boards and have oh, yeah. and you have to go in and be neutral you do and 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 one of the things I remember um that I realized that was a real moment for me is I was kind of saying to myself why why have suddenly finding facilitation has feel felt like um such a aha moment why it was like this you know where has this been all my life type mm-hmm. of moment and I realized because there's a theatrical part of it you know I come from a theatrical background so you have to be able to stand in front of a room and and command it and, you know, make people want to feel like they're included. Um, you have an audience, in other words, um, which I've never backed away from having an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other part of it was um, sort of figuring out that what you're doing is is being in the moment. You have to be constantly reading the situation. That's true. But you can't let your mind wander. You can't you can't be thinking, okay, at the end of this, this is what I'm going to do. You have to read every moment and you have to learn how to shift. And that, so, you know, you're reading a situation, you get body language, you realize this exercise I'm having them go on, it is going nowhere. I need to change this. Or so uh, the flexibility, the flexibility you, yeah. being mm-hmm. able to be nimble, you know, that was really, really a lesson for me. And that's when I sort of felt, this is why I felt, um, Am I most alive when I do that? I don't want to only do facilitation in my career, but it is something that I want to bring into almost every single element of the work I can do. Um, I'm also trying to be a little entrepreneurial. I'm trying to go into an area I've never really done except peripherally, which is working with, because of my work in the community, I have a good sense of the process by which you understand what the community needs and how you measure whether there have been successes or or not, and I'd like to actually work with a lot of our businesses in, in in starting in Syracuse, but elsewhere, to sort of say, you know, have you looked at your community giving and engagement platform? What's what's working? Are you just buying tables? You know, do you go and volunteer, and is that successful? How do you how do you really figure out what your 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 employees' desires are about what they'd like to see support? And studies are showing, of course, that. You know, millennials and younger employees want to feel connected in a community, and they want to feel connected to a non- uh, to nonprofit causes. They don't want to just say, "Oh, my good, my company just bought a twenty five hundred dollar table for this big gala." They would rather say, well, "My, you know, I really know what's going on at this found uh, this nonprofit that's serving, you know, blind kids, or this program that's tutoring after school." They, I want to go volunteer there. I want to do this. So. I feel like there's a real opportunity in our community to bring everyone together like that. And I think this is true elsewhere. I want to try to pilot it kind of in, uh, in Syracuse. I'm sure there's other people doing this work, but I want to bring to bear that idea of 
it's not there's always a power dynamic when you've got money and you seeking money giving money seeking money mm-hmm. and that was that was the uh, really difficult lesson for me when I moved from the supplicant position <laughs> to to the giving position and all of a sudden people are friendly to you that were never friendly to you ah, before ah. Um, so it's sort of like oh, and you get people kind of pitching to you in the middle of the supermarket but um and you know so what I want to do is is say look you know to businesses this is why you want to this is let's talk about why you want to do what you want to do is it marketing great is it just philanthropy great nonprofits you need to understand what they need. Businesses, you need to understand that the nonprofit can't just drop everything to let your team come in because they have to continue doing their good work. So it's kind of being an honest broker a little bit of, of because I've been on both, been my feet in both camps. So mm-hmm. that is a little bit still my, let's see what happens with that one. So, but, but the ultimate uh, goal here is to increase community. Mm-hmm. And also there's, um, conflict resolution Mm -hmm. part right i mean you really are in the business of making life better not only for boards and individuals but communities and well um, and ultimately that's why that's why not i mean not people are in nonprofits because they want to make their community better they want to fulfill a need um and they feel they have the best way to do it people go on boards because they believe in that mission Mm -hmm. i had a conversation with someone who was struggling and it was a board president and executive director and um i, I had uh, talked to one of them and they were just infuriated they couldn't even get past their fury and um i finally said to the board president you know why are you doing what you do and we as we unpacked it it was really she came to the mission and the importance of this nonprofit. and i said and if i were to talk to this executive director what do you suppose she would say is why she does what she does and the board president says the same thing. And I said, so you're on the same page. So that to me is to try to get people to understand that it's about, it's about the work. It's about the people being, being helped or entertained or served or fed or whatever. Mm-hmm. So if you don't you know, get, get past some of the ego, get past some of the, the, the freaking out about who's doing what, when, how can we help you get past money concerns, you know, and, and even maybe get past the, you know what, I tried, this project isn't going to work anymore. Mm-hmm. Or I've done this for 50 years, and I need to retire. And, you know, how do I hand this off? You know, there's just some really hard questions that I think people sometimes need to get back to the basics on. And that's what I'd like to, that's kind of really basically what capacity building is all about, which is a Kind of somewhat of a buzz term, new shiny object, and mm-hmm. Gifford's been doing it for over ten years now. But you know, it's really like find helping everyone understand what they need to do the important work that they feel strongly about. Mm-hmm. What do they believe in? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that that's fascinating. There are so many uh, overlaps, as you said, in family mm-hmm. therapy. Yeah. Um, how do you keep yourself? Um, engaged, positive, encouraged when we live in a city that has some substantial social problems. And I, could, I thought what you were going to say is how do you manage to stay positive and engaged when we live in a country that has so many... Well, you can, uh, you can <laughs> tackle that age. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, Take it where you want to go. <laughs> uh, I think that our city has, um, has certainly uh, major social problems. Again, because I tend to look at things from an asset-based, I would rather us have conversations about what the possibilities are rather than 
constantly focusing in on the problem. So, and I also believe that um, what we tend to do here is um, not always listen to the people most affected. Uh, one of the most profound moments to me was, you know, Syracuse recently had that big study that showed there was a great deal of, of, of institutional racism in, in portions that geogra geographically based, place-based. Um, and um, it was like poverty was suddenly like people discovered we had poverty in Syracuse. Who knew, right? <laughs> and I remember uh, a friend of mine who has come out of who came out of poverty, um, and she just said, "You know, people don't call themselves in poverty. They're having trouble getting by. Things are tough now." And it was a real moment to me to realize that we spend a whole lot of time, you know, not actually talking to the people most involved and saying, "What would you do to try to solve it?" Um, so for me, it's. It's an opportunity in our community to say, you know, what, what are we doing? What has happened that's done right? And how do we fix the things? What do we see as the opportunities or problems that we can get past in order to continue doing some of the things that seem right? And it doesn't mean putting, you know, um, all, the, all the great big huge department stores back downtown again. You know, that's just not going to happen, mm -hmm. right? And, um, but it might mean, okay, how do we take opportunities and look for changing up our transportation system? Um, how do we look at um, ways that, you know, a community itself helps solve its own problems rather than someone saying, I know best what's for it. Mm -hmm. You know, what does the community think they can do to shovel sidewalks or, you know, I could see that as being um, <clears throat> a problem with a, uh, a high-profile school like at Syracuse University. They do a lot of, obviously, um, government, civic stuff, and I can imagine that there's some ivory tower kind of phenomenon going on. Um, <laughs> the... Uh... The problem that I've seen with universities, and it's not just Syracuse, is um, a knowledge that is that sees, I think, too often community members as um, data or subjects of study, mm -hmm. and not necessarily understanding, again, to honor the knowledge that's present there. Um, it could be, we met with someone from the university who wanted to do some research at one point, this was about 10 years ago, and, and they were talking about the churches and they wanted to go, which was a great idea. And the two things that struck me, one was they only talked about the major churches that they knew of that were already the institutional churches and didn't understand that, that in, the, in the South Side in particular, there's a lot of storefront churches. And so they needed to understand if they really wanted to reach the people, they needed to have a knowledge about that, which means they had to go in and ask questions and be willing to learn. Mm -hmm. The second thing was they had they wanted to take this, this I can't remember what it was, but they wanted to take the research, go back, do whatever they were going to do with it. And then, you know, the question was, well, to what degree are you going to share that back with the community you just dealt with? And as I said, it's not something Syracuse alone does. Every, a lot, this happens mm -hmm. a lot, you know, so it's sort of saying, okay, this is this is this is those individuals' personal capital. The, you know, you are if you are studying diabetes in Latino women, or you are studying you know uh, oral history stories of, of of refugees. It's still their personal capital. So to what degree are you giving back to them and saying, "This is what we learned." Go back into the community and say, "Thank you." This is what we learned, and and some professors are doing that really well, and others are still in kind of old patterns. Uh -huh. That's that's really interesting. That's, um, again, my personal point of view, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... 
Hello, Zestful Agers. A short intermission to thank you for the incredible amount of downloads. I love creating this podcast, and it's so satisfying to know that you are enjoying it too. Creating and hosting Zestful Aging has been a blast, but it does require a lot of time and resources to deliver a high-quality interview to you every week. So I've signed up with Patreon, which is kind of like Kickstarter, but for ongoing artistic projects. Unlike Kickstarter, the donations are recurrent and the amount is usually smaller. When you become a patron of Zestful Aging, you will receive special benefits like behind the scenes info, a place to communicate with other listeners as well as other patron-only bonuses. These funds will be used to make equipment upgrades, particularly for mobile interviewing, and to travel to interview guests, like to New York City to interview participants in the Diversity Fashion Show. I also need to hire a professional editor. So please go to patreon.com forward slash zestful aging and make a small but vital donation. Thank you for contributing to the ongoing success of zestful aging, and I can't wait to bring you more juicy, inspiring interviews. Now back to the show. I'm curious, you, you have this, all of this kind of training with conflict resolution and strength space. Have you noticed yourself using it in your own personal life? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what was I a situation? It might, it might actually have been at work, but it was, it was more of a social thing at work. And I did something and, and my boss said, did you just facilitate me? <laughs> and I went, yeah, kind of. Um, so yes, I do. It's, it's been, I use it a lot. Um, I've used it a lot with my, with my, um, my kids. Um, my son is thinking of making a, a change and, um, he, you know, I said he didn't know which direction to go in and I just did a little appreciative inquiry. And I said, so tell me, you know, when in your grad school right now, have you been at your happiest? What, what was it? The absolute happiest moment you know, besides meeting your girlfriend, what was the happiest <laughs> moment academically? And his answer really helped me say to him, well, it sounds to me like this has got to be your next step. Mm-hmm. I did that to a friend of mine right after I did the appreciative inquiry. And she, and she got, she said to her husband, I heard it from her husband, she goes, Heidi just did something magical. And I said, it's not magical, but it's changing the way you think. It's just changing the way you think. You know, it makes me think that that kind of training could be so helpful with school children. Mm-hmm. Although, I don't know. That's an interesting thought. I haven't really thought about that. Um, sort of along. I with think some certainly of the... at the high school level, it would yeah. absolutely be incredibly valuable. Um, uh, I think that you know, for a lot of kids, there's a need for security that someone else is taking care of things and we don't want, we've I think run a little bit of risk of a lot of kids being pushed into more independence than they really should have that they are, are looking for more you know guidance uh-huh. more of a everything's gonna be fine <laughs> even though inside you know how we all as parents have said that you know inside you're going oh my god uh-huh. but you say to your kid oh, it's gonna work uh-huh. out everything's fine yeah well, I found I did that often enough that sometimes I began to believe it 
you know, um, and that was really helpful for me. So I think there's a certain amount of you don't want to unpack too much okay. uh, in that respect. But I do mm-hmm. think certainly as kids start to get older, to start to say, you know, I mean, the first thing when I just said that, I had this memory of my mother and father saying to me, smile, smile more. And I was thinking, I really don't want to smile. I hate my life right now. I hate you. I hate the sun. I hate trees. I hate my dog. I hate everything, you know. Yeah. And, and I, I think that there's a, you run the risk of denying people's emotions uh, and feelings in the moment by saying, oh, always look to the positive. That's mm-hmm. not what this is meant to be. Mm-hmm. There's um, a TED Talk. I, have you seen this about the problem with positivity? No. Um, I you might like that, yeah, that sort yeah. of the idea of it's sort of uh, the politically correct thing right. to be, right. and it denies what it's really like to be human. Right, and that's what I think gets missed a lot with things like, you know, asset-based thinking or, or, or strength-based thinking or appreciative inquiry is this feel, oh, you're looking at it from Pollyanna. Mm. You're looking at it as everything's everything's good. It's not. It's sort of saying, like, things are really crappy right now. But at some point, something, somewhere, might have been good. So what, how, how we figure out how to do more of that and less of this bad behavior that mm-hmm. is getting us all unhappy about something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons, like, you know, to sort of wear a political hat that... You know, as our country had the election and everyone was kind of shocked and stunned and, and, and you know, like, what, where are we going in this direction? And, and even people who, who don't, weren't necessarily political are a little bit stunned and shocked and wondering what's going on. It. And, and for me, it's a little bit more of, um, okay, well, you know, when was our, what can be, not, not what can be the positive that just comes out of it, but, you know, when has our country been at its most vibrant? Well, our country's been at its most vibrant when there's an engaged democracy and an engaged, you know, community and, and, and population. Well, frankly, all these things that have been happening have created an engaged community. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, that's good. Let's do more engagement. Those kids in Parkland are, to me, like, the, the, the greatest gift we've ever had because they're teaching us again. You know, you get up there and you say it. You do it. Mm-hmm. No one's going to sit down with them and say, you know, that's, well, I'm sure there are. That's never going to work. Um, yeah, that's a... I think that and that's the problem when you go back to the Syracuse question the 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 biggest thing I see changing in Syracuse which I love is when I first started um, and I said I'd been in Syracuse for you know 15 or uh, years or so by the time I went to work uh, uh, no yeah but 20 years when I went to work for Gifford um, 15 20 years but I had only really got to know Syracuse because I'd been I knew the arts community extraordinarily well but I didn't really know the Syracuse economic development, community development world as much. Mm-hmm. And if I had a dollar for every time people said to me, oh, we tried that once, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And it drove me wild, you know. And um, I don't have, I have to be honest, I haven't heard that as much. Mm-hmm. That's my sense of hope for our community. Oh, wow. I don't hear as many people saying we tried that once. I hear more of a, let's try it, you know, or who knows. Or I know somebody who might help you know somebody who help you might know somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, more hopeful. I feel more hopeful, yeah, to be honest. I really do. I think there's a lot of possibilities. And I think it's true of, you know, the cities. Every time I go to conferences and people talk about what's going on in their community, I'm like, yep, same as Syracuse. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly the same. Syracuse has always been this funny place where it's like, you know, we are, you know, nothing will ever work here. Nothing will ever, you know, things we tried, people hate it, people are going to leave the weather, blah, 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 blah. And then you try to say to them, well, have you thought of this? And they go, no, 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 we're kind of special. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> no, 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 we're very special here. We wouldn't, you know, don't. So it's this kind of weird tucking back and forth. 
Interesting. So you're expecting a grandchild? Yeah, in June, yep. Uh-huh. What's the that? One. What's that like? Um <laughs> it's been fascinating. Um my daughter and I have always been my kids and I are very close and um she uh is is uh, she works as a physician's assistant in a NICU, so she has wanted to have babies for a while. Um so I knew that this is something she's been wanting very much. She's she's about to turn 30. Um and uh we, you know, she was like, well, you know, you're going to come out. You, now you're not working. You can come out. You can babysit, you know. And I said, well, mm, no, maybe not completely. Mm -hmm. I'll come out when you need me. Is but she, she far away? She's in Connecticut. Oh, no, She's okay. in Connecticut. And, and so I was like, you know, I'm not so sure I'm going to be able to come out all the time. I'll come out when I can. But I, And I finally just said, you know, honey, I'm not the grandma that comes out and, like, lives and becomes a nanny. I'm the grandma that swoops in when they're eight years old and I take them to Europe. Oh, you better I get love ready. That. You better get ready for that. Yeah, you know? but yeah. but I'm not necessarily the you know. I love. I'm gonna love them to death, and I want to be a part of my yeah. any of my grandchildren's lives. But but um, I I I one of the things I remember my daughter saying to me that was very important to her was that she always knew that I had another life beyond being a mother. Really? Yeah. And even when we we moved to Syracuse when she was two. And two and a half. So she really didn't know. I mean, I went, for the first, you know, four or five years, I wasn't working full time, but I was working part time. So she was like, you know, in daycare sometimes or after school programs and, and things like that. And then, of course, when my marriage ended and I had to go back to work, my, my ex-husband made it possible for me to go back to work part time for about three years. But still, you know, but she's always said it's always been valuable to her to know that I, I, I was there was I was always be there for her. But I had another world. I had another life, and that was important. Mm -hmm. So for both my kids, they have common in the fact that they really respected the fact that I worked and, and I was able to juggle and be home when I needed to be home and work in family-friendly environments, Syracuse Stage and, and Gifford are both very family-friendly environments. So they know. Is she an artistic kid? No, Your daughter? No, no, I guess she's a dancer, but otherwise I would say that she has not... Both of my kids did a lot of theater yeah. <laughs> because they were dragged to theater all the time. <laughs> um, my son is getting his Master's in Divinity um, and uh -huh. is uh, not sure if he's going to be a pastor or a preacher or not, but you know, he's mostly interested in social justice issues. That's his, he wants to sort of see the intersection between faith and social justice. Where, so I, is, where is he? He's in Atlanta at uh -huh. uh, McAfee Theological Seminary at Mercer University. Huh, how interesting. So, yeah, both my kids have had really fascinating pathways. I was thinking about how we're in this whole new world of being middle-aged and over and how because we're living longer, we have a whole, uh, there's so many more years to do things that, you know, the generation before us has not been able to do. And I think about you becoming a grandmother at the very same time you're starting this new career. And about to turn 60. And about to turn 60. Well, I mean, actually, 60. I will have, unless the baby comes early, I will have turned 60 just a few weeks before uh -huh. the baby is born. Uh-huh. Is that something you think about a lot, or is that just the way it is for you? I think it, it yeah, I mean, I, I, I firmly believe things don't, happen randomly so I you know I do believe things all come together I have thought about for the past couple of years whether I want to go off on my own and, and and do some consulting work um and and the two things I think that did trigger it were um my mother passing away so my mother had dementia for, and so she 
lived in Florida. So, so really for the, for the five years before she died, but particularly in the last two years, I was down there almost every six to eight weeks. And my mm-hmm. sister and I going together, tag teaming, um, it's just the two of us. And she really had some rapid deterioration. And fortunately, my father had left her well off enough that she was able to be in a nice facility. We were very fortunate that we could, you know, trust the people dealing with her. Um, but it was still obviously very painful to watch and having to be, and I handled all of her financials. And so watching her, um, and she, she lived a, a good age. She was 94 when she died. And, and she definitely, I think, um, would have been very happy with her life and had always, I think, would have been, you know, been happy, right? Not happy, that's a horrible word. Would have been content if she had passed earlier because she always felt she'd lived a very full life. Uh-huh. And um, to a great degree, I, off, I also feel that, you know. Um, and uh, while I want to live to be 90-something, um, uh, I also know that something horrible, you know, happened. I've lived a good life. I feel very good about the life I've lived. I feel great about the possibilities and what's ahead of me. But I, I, and I feel obviously regret for things that had happened in the past, but I don't feel that I um, have been a failure. I don't feel that if something happened that, you know, life is over or life is, you know, uh, over for my family or my friends. I mean, you know, I, I feel very, I feel very content, uh, I think is what it comes down to. Um, the, 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 the grandbaby has coming as it did, you know, her pregnancy telling me this in October and my mother had died in February. So literally almost six months later, really did create this sense of this dynamic of this continuum. Mm -hmm. And so I think that all that tied into each other to sort of say, you know what, I am very good with what I've done so far. I feel very good about it, but you know, there's a lot of possibilities and why not? I've done well here. I've made it. I've got good kids that are are successful and happy. And Mm -hmm. so what the hell? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes, but still scary, but yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. That's really interesting. Um, what would you say to our listeners who um, might be looking towards retirement or typical retirement age? They know that um, they want to do something they don't really know what it is, and it just seems like such a huge transition. Mm-hmm. Where to start? I mean, this idea of reinvention that you, I love your quote, like I knew I had more one more reinvention mm-hmm. in me, and I have clients who basically say that. I know I'm not done yet. I could live 40 more years. Now what? Now what? Um, again, I'd probably use appreciative inquiry and sort of say, you know, think about the time you've been at your happiest, most fulfilled. Professionally, tell me a story. I mean, it's really about storytelling, which I'm also really fascinated about um, storytelling in nonprofits and individuals and, and families. And so, you know, tell me a story about a time in your past where, so stories, not just one story, mm-hmm. where you have felt really great. And it could be a doctor saying, you know what, I remember painting this picture when I was in college and suddenly feeling like you know and, and I might say if you've ever thought about painting again so it's finding those times or even if it's gee you know you're not going to want to become a painter but have you ever thought about joining the board of an art museum or you know taking this trip that you know sort of sort of um uh it, it, a lot of it that's a question that's only weighted in the sense that not many people have the opportunities that I have been able to have right I have the opportunity 
to be able to leave a job. And I had the opportunity to know that I have enough resources that I'm not going to lose my home. The majority of people in this world don't have that opportunity. So saying to someone as they're older, you know, take this risk, it's it's all a matter of nuance, right? Mm-hmm. Not everyone's going to be able to do that. It's a reality. Um, it's a reality, yeah. right? You know, so to sit here and say to someone, oh, you know, just go for it. You want to retire? Well, for many people, they can't retire. Um, they just they can't financially afford to. Um, I guess to them, I would still say, um, you know, well, there are some givens, there's some realities. You can't, maybe you're not feeling like you're in a financially uh, position to retire right now, but maybe you're in a position to change something, right? You know, well, what have you, when if you felt, you know, you really wanted good about something? Maybe you want to start to volunteer somewhere, or maybe you want to start writing, uh, or maybe you, you know, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about with Barbara Bush passing and, 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 the thing about you'll never re- you'll 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 never regret um, that law that you know that 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 paper that you wrote or that you know um, tr- uh, trial that you presided over or whatever, but you will regret not spending time with mother or family or whatever. So mm-hmm. the other thing I'd say is you know how to how to you know look at the things that are most important in your life. Um, there is no easy answer for people who don't have the opportunity to do whatever mm-hmm. they want. <laughs> You know, uh, and then that's, I guess, just finding whatever, um, hopefully they, uh, everyone can find, anyone, whatever their circumstance can find, whatever that kind of inner, inner stillness is or inner um, balance is that makes them feel like they are, um, you know, content or content and brave enough to make a change. I don't think I would have, again, I don't want to run away from something. I would not have made this change if I was filled with discontent. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that would not have been a good reason to make the change. Um, and I, there had been times when I had been in other jobs where I was filled with discontent and thought, I got to get the hell out of here. And for one reason or another, almost invariably, I can't think of a situation, in fact, where it wasn't, I had no choice. I was there in it. So do I make lemonade out of the lemons? Mm-hmm. Do I try to f- make this work in a way... I'll try this, I'll try this, I'll try that. And then only after I've tried everything would be like, oh, you know what, this is this is crazy. The lemons are rotten. The lemons are rotten, you know. <laughs> yeah. And as we used to say, you know, the whole the whole saying for um in the in the nonprofit field and particularly around foundations was, you know, um, don't don't teach don't give me the fish, teach me how to fish. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we used to say is but sometimes people just won't pick up the damn rod. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean there's a certain point where you just say, you know what, you can't you can't force people to do things that they're not going to do. So, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I, what I would say to somebody, I guess, is just try to figure out, even if it's a tiny, small thing, what makes you the happiest. And not not from a position of I should, but I want. Mm-hmm. And I'm not very good at following that myself. I still do the, you know, oh, I really should go to the gym, or I really should do this, mm-hmm. or whatever, and... What do I want to do? What I want to do is sit on my deck mm-hmm. with my dogs, or mm-hmm. I want to have coffee with a friend, mm-hmm. or I want to go to this conference, or I want to, you know, do this or that. You know, going towards going, going towards. towards. Yeah. So, uh, where can our listeners find you, Heidi? Uh, well, the website stillworkconsulting.com, mm-hmm. um, and I also have a social media presence through LinkedIn. LinkedIn is actually under my name, Heidi Holtz. Um, and mm-hmm. I have not at a point yet, though I've thought of it, of having 
newsletters or blog posts or anything like that. Um, so I'm kind of getting to that on my own. Um, trying out a lot of different things. I don't know what's going to work yet. Trying to, doing a lot of piloting of things. Mm-hmm. Working with people. So, yeah, who knows? It'll You're in the yeah, age of uh, adventure and discovery. There you go. That's actually it. Yeah. And it's spring. Somehow it feels All coming together right. at the same yep. moment, right? But yep. Is it spring? Um, <laughs> I don't let's, know. Let's I think there's still snow in my backyard. Yeah, yeah, I know. So when it becomes spring, yes, yeah. I will think that. Um, yeah, no, there, there is a lot of, uh, in fact, I can see myself, you know, 10 years from now having this conversation going, wow, it's really interesting. I did it when I was becoming a grandmother and my daughter, you know, was turning 30 and I was turning 60 and my son had gone, gone to a new career and it was spring in Syracuse and it, all's come and it all came coalesce. together. Right now, I thought it wasn't planned. Yeah. At one point I thought about doing this in the summer and I just decided to do it earlier so who knows (laughs) i wish i could say everything was life was planned but it never is that is for sure well i wish you great success on your new adventures plural (laughs) and i really appreciate you coming and 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 giving this I, i think really lovely advice to people who find themselves in somewhat similar situations. Mm-hmm. Not exactly, but can certainly identify with making so. these big changes. I hope so. I yeah. mean, I, I learned so much in life from people who came before me, and so yeah. it's, sort of, it's sort of like when you cook, and, you know, when you first start cooking, you have to measure everything, and then, then you're like, oh, you know, I kind of know what a teaspoon of salt looks like. Right. Sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong, but, you know, it's more about knowing what's in the recipe instinctively rather than... Well, you build confidence yeah, you and build trust, confidence. as yeah. you talked about. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. I love to hear from my listeners, so send me an email at nicolechristina.com and tell me what you'd like to hear more about. I would also greatly appreciate if you could hop on iTunes and rate the show. Ratings help other people find the podcast so I can share all these good juicy interviews with others. I would also invite you to become a patron of the Zestful Aging Podcast. Hop on over to patreon.com forward slash Zestful Aging and consider making a small donation you will be eligible for insider-only goodies and behind-the-scenes information, and it'll help you feel good knowing that you're contributing to the Zestful Aging Podcast. I'll look forward to sharing more juicy interviews next week on Zestful Aging.